Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the March 15th, 2022 edition of Ask a Leader. Today, I begin bringing you some, uh, you know, coverage of our primary. So my first candidate in this lineup for the June 7th primary is Orange County Assessor candidate Rick Foster. He is challenging the incumbent. So we're going to talk with him in the first segment. And in the second segment is going to be John Potash. He'll talk about the unsolved case in his brand new edition of the FBI war on Tupac Shakur, state repression of black leaders from the civil rights era through the 1990s, which comes with an exhibition in Los Angeles that will continue through the end of this month. Listeners will readily recognize some persistent themes. We'll be right back. Don't go well. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Orange County Assessor Candidate Rick Foster. He's challenging incumbent Claude Parrish. Claude Parrish won his second election outright with second terms with his 69% of the vote in the 2018 primary. And this is why coverage of assessor and other local candidates is so important. The primary is the general election if a candidate wins 50% plus one vote. So with the background, we're going to talk uh, to Rick Foster. He's been affiliated with the Actors Union, SAG-AFTRA, for over three decades and even was a a night watchman at county fairs across the, the country. So he earned his Bachelor's of Arts in Political Science from Albertus Magnus College in New Haven, Connecticut. Upon returning to Orange County, he's worked in both the finance and mortgage sectors and obtained residential real estate and broker's licenses. Among the companies he's founded, currently he's the founder and managing member of the Universe Properties LLC, which provides homes for seniors, disabled veterans, and battered women transitioning from shelters to housing. He founded You Are Safe Here, and those are in quotes, an international city designation for LGBTQ plus visitors and refugees, and led efforts to defend the human rights of the same protected group, LGBTQ plus refugees in Africa, Afghanistan, and Cuba. He's helped parolees re-enter society as a founding partner of Workplace Enterprises, and was recently appointed to serve on Orange County's Development Process Review Board. He comes to us today from from Seal Beach. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Rick Foster. Well, Claudia, thank you so much. Well, thank you. So, yes. That was a great introduction. Thank you. I'm I'm glad and I'm honored that you've invited me to be on your show today. Well, you're here to build literacy on electoral politics and policy because uh, I don't, when I consider myself a reasonably sophisticated voter and I had to do some checking around about what is going on there. So first then, Rick Foster, I'd like to make this interview a tutorial on what are the responsibilities of an assessor and it's it's not easy to find it's not it's not made easier by the the campaign websites about what needs to get done so i don't know if it's by design to obscure make it difficult for office holders to be accountable to to scrutinize the challengers so what does the assessor do in just the most granular detail but starting generally Yes. Okay. I'll be happy to explain that. So the the assessor. A lot of people get the assessor mixed up with the tax collector or the the treasurer or the controller. The the assessor has a very specific job, and the assessor's job is to manage a staff in Orange County is between three and four hundred, mostly appraisers. Some are uh, desktop appraisers. Some are out in the field doing appraisals, and the job is to assess 
nearly $700 billion in assets in the county of Orange. And that is single-family residents, commercial properties, apartment buildings, manufacturing plants, amusement parks, um, and aviation and marine um, assets. The assessor's responsibility is to assess the values of those properties and then each year to turn over an assessment role to the county tax collector. And then that tax collector is the one that actually applies the tax rules that govern the, the amount of tax that someone will pay and then produces the tax bill that is mailed out to each individual uh, property owner. The assessor does not collect taxes. The assessor does not send out the tax bill. The assessor merely manages the office of the assessor and makes sure that we have accurate, timely, fair assessments of all the assets in Orange County. That basically is the job of the assessor. And just for the real sort of kind of local government geeks, so it's, it's real property? It, it's, does it include some kinds of personal property? Yes. Um, so, well, there, there's certain certain aspects like um, if you have uh, furniture in a business or you have assets in a business that is uh, part of the business asset, that is also um, assessed um, or given a value. Um, and then the tax collector, again, decides what um, tax code to apply to that. The um, So aviation, airplanes, you know, manufacturing, what it, what it, and even amusement parks. When the amusement park updates or expands or adds new rides, those, those new rides and those new attractions actually have a value. So the assessor's job is to place a value on those and then apply that to the assessment role that he turns over to the tax collector. So it would be, it would include fixtures, which aren't necessarily real property. So fixtures and other, and I mean, assets in terms of the, what are the, um, what gives the value to the property? Right. That's more more in the line of business. So in, in business assets, you would apply the fixtures. Of course, you know, if you're just doing a single family home, you know, you're not going to say, okay, well, they have, you know, a, a, what kind of stove they have or lighting fixtures. That doesn't apply. It's it's mostly, it's, it's when you start to apply the personal properties, it's in the line of doing business, um, oh. you know, a, a, items that are part of the business aspect. Okay, so for for everything from aircraft to forklifts, pretty much yes. Okay, yes. well, no, that's that that gives us something to really imagine how this all works. So naturally, before I'm going to break down the status quo of the office that I've been learning about, that I how do you explain that you're ready to do this job? This is again, we're always reminded Orange County is ranks the fifth largest by population, far largest county in the country. What qualifications do you have to manage this large, large agency? Well, well Claudia, for um, 40 years, over 40 years now, I've been working in the housing sector and, um, most of that has been in, in real estate. I started off um, working with First American Title, uh, Security Pacific National Bank, um, preparing documents to be sold on the secondary market, which is part of their lending practice. Okay. And um, from that, I went into um, property management and real estate sales. And I started to find a lot of problems where their errors had been made on deeds and errors had been made in the assessments and that really affected the um, saleability of properties. So I started basically at that time, I started a real estate company where we started to work with seniors and I it, predominantly in the 55 plus communities. And we found that in those communities, there were more errors done on the assessments because a lot of people didn't understand some of the land leases that are in Orange County of the 55 plus communities or the taxation of that or the assessment of those um, properties. I was able to utilize the information that I learned through my training in real estate to partner with Orange County Housing Authority to help provide permanent housing um, for our you know, senior citizens and, of course, our veterans. And then I was asked to help um, you know, people that were transitioning from shelters into permanent homes. Um, 
over the 40 years, I've worked closely with the assessor's office, clearing up and checking on titles and clearing up any type of assessment issues. Um, a lot of times people get into trouble with the supplemental tax bills, um, and that's when, you know, we start to get um, – you know, blemishes on deeds or liens on, you know, uh, property that we have to clear before they can be sold or transferred. So do these kinds of clouds on the title, do they they sort of drive the assessed value then? They can't. They can affect the, um, the assessed value because um, sometimes it may be deemed that there's a cloud on the title um, – that might have, let's say that there's something where the assessor has um, not assigned, um, well, if the assessor has deemed the property to be a lease land. Right, like where University Hills. value based on a land lease that isn't accurate, that could, could create a problem for the transfer and make the property less valuable or non-transferable. And I, I just have to say, because uh, this is all about University Hills hearing this uh, interview, because, I mean, the entire neighborhood is on a land lease to the from being held by the UC Board of Regents, the entire neighborhood, oh. all of it. Yes. So land leases are, are always, always a little uh, tricky. The, the, the number one thing is every parcel that is taxed has an APN number, an assessor's parcel number. Those parcel numbers are handed out at the time of construction or at the time that the property is is given a uh, occupancy or permit to be you know uh, a property um, the APN number is what the assessor follows to apply the assessed values on lease land you usually have each unit with its own APN number but there are occasions where the APN number or the assessor property number gets confused with the actual person that owns the land. And some people go, how, how come I'm paying all this money for uh, taxes on a property, but I don't own the land? It's because the assessed value of the land transfers to the person occupying um, that property or that APN number. Okay, there you have it. You hills. And, yes. Yeah, and what I what I like to, to tell people whenever I'm you know out talking to you about the assessor, I, is I as I always tell them, you know, our our country was founded on the ideal of fair taxation with representation. That was what the Boston Tea Party is that we all learned about as children. So if we believe that our democracy was founded on fair taxation, or that you know with representation, then the pillar of our democracy must be fair taxation. And if we believe that, then the assessor is the cornerstone to our democracy, because we cannot have democracy without fair tax, fair and accurate taxation or fair and accurate assessments, because that the assessor is crucial to making sure that we have the accurate fair, and timely assessments so that we have fair taxation. I'm going to get to that and blow it all the way up in a moment. But first, it's that still, it's about you right now, Rick Foster, is why do you want to do this job? It's in my wheelhouse. It's, it's real estate and property and property assessments has, and, and appraisals has been something that I've been doing since I was 16 years old. Um, you know, I took my first real estate course um, at Lumbo Real Estate back when I was 17 years old and took courses at Golden West College in real estate um, finance and appraisal. Um, and it's something I've always been doing, something I've enjoyed, something that I feel that I have a um, strong background in. And I also want to make sure that Orange County is everyone in Orange County is treated fairly in the assessments, which you know translates into taxation. Um, you know, I'm I my family's been calling Orange County our home for five generations, and I am very proud to be an Orange Countyan. And anything that I can do to give back to my community and to a county that I love so much and that my family's been calling home, I feel compelled and driven to do. 
And that's one of the main reasons I'm running for Orange County Assessor. And I feel that I'm highly qualified for the job. Is this like a terminal career point? Um, yes. I, I mean, this is, I wouldn't, I mean, I, I mean, my goal is to continue working. I mean, I'm 50 no, years no, old. No, no, no. I don't mean I, it that way. I you just know, mean... have a lot of, a lot of life left in me and I continue, you know, I plan to continue working, but I think the assessor office is something that I can contribute to. Well, what I meant by not, we're not retiring anybody. I just meant if this is like, this is the peak, this is like the highest sort of point you could be reaching in your assessor sorts of uh, line of career. Yes, yes, this is this is this be the pinnacle of that. Pinnacle. So for those of you who've just joined us, you're listening to Ask a Leader. My guest is Orange County Assessor Candidate Rick Foster. The primary, um, which will be on the ballot, will be on June 7th. And so we're just learning about what the assessor does. So I had an opportunity with a very, very credible kind of a, a resource that the the incumbent who is seeking now what would be his I guess his third term his first election in 2014 yes and the concern was that the office is working on about almost 40 year old technology managing this behemoth of a responsibility that you're talking about is fair assessment of all these values around this huge county so I'd like to know what you've ascertained is the way the, the, the what is the status quo of managing the assessor's office well i'm glad that you brought up technology um my opponent the incumbent um has not utilized the funds that he has given to um update the software and the technology that helps the field appraisers or the office appraisers do their job accurately which then manifest into um, inaccurate assessments, which then turn into assessment appeals. The assessment appeals is a very, you know, strenuous process for the property owner as well as for the county, and it can cost the county lots of money and resources to do those appeals. With better and more up-to-date software, it not only makes the job easier and more accurate for the asset, for the appraisers that are doing the assessments, um, it also will limit the number of um, disgruntled or, or not disgruntled, I don't want to use that word, but it will limit the number of appeals that the county will see. One of the things that I would like to see in technology is not only the software for the um, for the appraisers, but also the idea of bringing um, more people into the appraisal's office. Uh, the the, appra- the appraisers in the assessor's office is kind of a some, for some people, it's the beginning of their appraisal career or their assessment career, and a lot of times they, they don't stay long. They come in and they learn what they need to do. They work for a while, and then they, they move on to other jobs. I would like to see our community colleges partner with the assessor's office to offer training such as a municipal appraisal course so that students can go and learn about municipal appraisals and then apply for a job at the assessor's office. And then that that candidate for an appraiser comes to the assessor office with already, you know, uh, a fairly good knowledge of municipal appraisals and is able to jump right in in the job in the in the assessor's office. Currently today, many field appraisers are taken off the job to train a new hire, and this costs the county resources again. And I think that it would be wonderful if we could partner with the community colleges or with the local colleges to provide municipal appraisal courses. Those are some of the some of the things that I'd like to see um, as the next appraiser or next assessor. So that's that's an interesting part you bring up about the funds that the assessor's office uh, has. So the the revenue stream comes from the the collection, the tax collection. Does it does it go through the board of supervisors and then it's appropriated to the assessor's office? Yeah, the Board of Supervisors, you know, the Board of Supervisors, the appraiser, the assessor and the Board of Supervisors, they give a budget. So the assessor gets a budget 
from the Board of Supervisors, from the county, from the general fund, to then manage the assessor's office. Um, and some of that money is earmarked for technology and upgrades. Um, and, you know, uh, my uh, uh, incumbent, my opponent, has not been utilizing those funds for those um, technology upgrades. Why do you think so, that, why do you think there's the reticence to bring us to 2022? You know, I, I don't. I don't think he fully understands technology. I think uh, my opponent um, doesn't fully understand the need for technology, or understands how to trust. You know, um, technology to be able to be more accurate than you know than pad and paper. Um, I think that um, you know a lot of times is is we. You know, we fear what we don't know, and perhaps uh, he just doesn't understand um, technology, and I think that might be part of the reason. Well, this isn't um, this whatever kind of distance this person, the incumbent, has on the kind of available technology to manage this effectively. I mean, it's this comes at a huge opportunity cost to the kind of revenue that it would garner the county to operate. It, Talk yes. about it, those well, opportunities. Not, not, I don't know about the revenue stream, but definitely the cost. Um, it it, co- it it costs the county a lot, um, you know, to to take on these appeals, um, you know, and it also um, it makes the public mistrust the assessor. And I'm somebody that I believe in integrity, technology, and transparency. And part of the thing, like I said before, is we fear what we don't know. And I would love to see the assessor have more public outreach and be more transparent. So let people know what the assessor does, how the assessor assesses property values or appraises them, so that people don't fear the assessor. You know, I, I had one person come to me and say, well, I haven't painted the front of my house. I'm afraid to fix up the front of my house because I'm afraid the assessor will come by and, and reassess my my property values, um, you know, and I won't be able to afford the new tax um, liability. And I want to educate the public on the the myths and, and eliminate, you know, the fears that people have about the assessor. So... But the, as it was explained to me, there's a, a huge amount of, I mean, it's a delay in the kind of machinery that's used in, in processing all this. But it's also, it sort of obscures what are the real, the what's the real use of that real property asset. I mean, it's it's sort of, everything is just behind. So it's sort of, it's just, it's just not a correct read of all, all the real property in the county. It's um, because the assessment, some of the assessments are flawed at the, when some of the assessments are flawed when they're not the technology or the, the antiquated technology or software sometimes does not pick up certain aspects of, of an asset or um, have, you know, take into account different types of um you know, perhaps um, implied um, use or um, asset. Um, and that can also create a misread on the assessment. Which, and, the and, purpose, and that's which is important. The purpose of the, of the asset. And that's what helps sort of, there are, are so many policy decisions made on what those, how those assets are being used. I mean, it's driving a lot of different trains, correct? Absolutely, absolutely, and one of the, one of the simplest ones that I can that I yes, can you know an example kind of let um, listeners um, know about is Airbnbs, you know, vacation rentals. You know, when those are used as a business, that becomes a business. And when you rent a um, Airbnb and you rent a um, vacation rental that comes furnished, that furniture is now part of the business. That furniture in the house is now part of the business asset. Um, you know, and so there's a lot of policies being made about how do you assess? Do you assess the do you assess the furniture that's in the house if the house is used for you know a vacation rental or a business? Um, how exactly is is that taxed or assessed? So there's and, and that goes all the way to aviation, to marine. You know, is is the boat being used in a commercial operation or is it just a recreational you know vessel? 
Um, so there's lots of it's, it's all about the use of the property in a lot of instances. And um, sometimes the appraiser currently the assess the assessed value is is not accurate. Well, and so the snapshot, if it's really delayed, Rick Foster, then we're not even going to get an accurate picture of how the pandemic has completely shuffled the the uses of all the real property in the county. Well, we'll always have the value. So the the assessor is responsible for the value at the time. So the fair market value or the value of the property. Now, now we, you know, so so as far as the the property value goes, as far as the assessment role goes, that pretty much is is standard. Now we've had you know some areas where property values have gone up significantly during the pandemic, and some property values have gone down during the right, pandemic. Right, right. So anything that transfers um, entity or names or transfers or sales triggers a new um, market value or a new assessment value. Um, that's that's pretty much the sole responsibility of the assessor, um, not so much the economics of the taxation. Right, right. But, I, but I'm just saying that there's there have been changes in uses, a whole re-under, I mean, yeah, a whole whole sort of tectonic shift in that. So I want to get that. But I, I wanted to, you were going to say, and then I had some last wrap-up questions for you. Yes. Um, so, yes, there, there's, there is, uh, there is, I think it's a small amount of where the, where the assessments um, might differ because okay. of the pandemic, not, especially okay. when you had a lot of turnover in rental and you also right. have a decline in vacation rentals and you have a decline in tourism. So those industries that perhaps utilize, um, you know, fixed assets or, you know, um, used as assets, those may be diminished because of the lack of use. I'm just thinking of so many business properties that have been emptied out. They've relocated. They've uh, closed. So it's sort of like there's nothing going on. There's nothing inside. So that would be. So I'm just putting it out there. But when I looked at the incumbents platform, I don't see anything on the bullet points that suggest there is a commitment to upgrading the technology in the assessor's office. So that's a cause for concern. I also didn't see that identified on your campaign website. So it sorts, it does obscure, I think, an important mal uh, or underperformance. I don't know about malfunction, but an underperformance <laughs> in the assessor's office. So I want to bring that up. So um, I'd like to know which organizations have you or do you plan on completing their questionnaires? There's Ballotpedia, there's League of Women Voters. Which organizations do you plan on giving some sorts of insight about your policy positions? Who's who's yeah. lined up? As as you mentioned, um, Prince, I, I've been a um, card carrying, um, dues paying member of the Screen Actors Guild for the past forty years. Um, I currently serve on the Government Affairs and Public Policy uh, Committee for the Screen Actors Guild, and um, with that union, are um, you know I, I respect unions and the and the right to work, and, and with that I have filled out questionnaires and I've received the endorsement of the Orange County Labor Federation. That's actually not my was, question. My, that's not my my question is there are organizations that vet candidates for either for endorsement or that post the kinds of um, positions and background on you, like the Ballotpedia or the League of Women Voters. That's what I wanted to find out. Yes, WAVE. I've, I've filled out the questionnaire for for WAVE. Um, we're waiting for their, for their endorsement, um, for the Community Action Fund, um, for the um, – we've had union questionnaires that, that, we've, that we've done. Um, what other questionnaires? I'm racking my brain here because we've probably done 50 of them. Um, and, um, of course, the Democratic Party of Orange County questionnaire. Um, but those are the ones that – and then all the unions, every all the labor and trade unions, we've done their questionnaires. Um, and the Democratic uh, um, Federation, uh, we're doing theirs. Uh, those are the only ones I can think of right now, but but like I said, we've we've been doing questionnaires for the last few months, and many of them. We'll put Ballotpedia on your radar, so that it's one that it's a resource that I use, and other people like to uh, sort of put lots of candidates in one place. It's another one. So I I'd like to know as a final question, 
Rick Foster, how do you now, how are you involved in getting voters to turn out, how to remember to vote down ballot? It's a, it's, since this is, this could be the deciding election, the general for the assessor's office. Yes, and the, the, absolutely. Um, what we are doing in our campaign, we're a grassroots campaign. I'm, I'm out, um, you know, stumping and giving, you know, in-person meet and greets wherever I can, as well as Zoom, um, you know, uh, meetings and, and lectures and speeches. But we're, we're going to be focusing a lot on social media. And we're going to be walking with um, postcards, and um, I'll be doing walk and talks and uh, public outreach for the campaign. So we'll be doing mailing, slate cards, social media, and, um, you know, more um, in-person events as they become available. Okay. Well, I appreciate the time that you're taking, and I always let the candidates know that I mean, I thank them for the interview when I get that opportunity, as well as I thank all candidates for running for office. Thank you so much for your time today, Rick Foster. Thank you for having me. My guest was Orange County Assessor candidate Rick Foster. We'll be right back with my second guest to talk about the unsolved case in his book, The FBI War on Tupac Shakur, The State Repression of Black Leaders from Civil Rights Era Through the 1990s, which comes with an exhibit in Los Angeles going through the end of the month. We'll be right back. Thank you all for staying with me. My next guest is John Potash, the author and producer of the book and film Drugs as Weapons Against Us, the CIA's War on Musicians and Activists. We're focusing on his book's update release, The FBI War on Tupac Shakur, State Repression of Black Leaders from the Civil Rights Era Through the 1990s. And so he's previously written and produced The FBI War on Tupac Shakur and Black Leaders, book and film, and he's been featured in television appearances on C-SPAN's American History TV, Reels Channel, Hollywood DC on RT, and in the arts and entertainments Who Killed Tupac, as well as the Real News Network, where he's discussed the politics of Tupac's life and assassination. He's appeared on hundreds of radio programs. We get them here on ours in the U.S., England, New Zealand, including uh, Coast to Coast AM. He completed his graduate studies at Columbia University and has worked counseling people with mental health problems and addictions for over 30 years. He comes to us today from Baltimore. Welcome to Ask a Leader, John Potash. Thanks for having me on, Claudia. Well, thank you. It's a it's a really interesting read, and I thank just you. want to know, yes, um, who are the readers you're trying to reach with the FBI war on Tupac Shakur? Just anyone who's interested in in alternative uh, history regarding the civil rights movement, along with uh, Tupac's life and history, and really anyone who's interested in you know civil rights and war and peace, because. These are, you know, I got interested in because of social justice issues. You know, I, I was loosely interested in rap, uh, more interested in alternative music. But at the time, I, you know, I was listening to Public Enemy and some other music like that. When I started writing about, and I was writing a book on the Black Panthers and other aspects of, actually, it was the the book that Drugs as Weapons Against Us was based on, and it was also based on my counseling, doing addictions counseling in Baltimore City at the time. And I ended up, um, you know, finding out this wild history about the Shakurs, who I ended up finding offer a window into the hidden history of Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, and others in the way U.S. intelligence targeted them, believe it or not, because a man named Saladin Abba Shakur was, a, was part of Marcus Garvey's group, and then he was a close confidant of Malcolm X, and then his sons, his biological sons, uh, Lumumba Shakur and Zaid Shakur, were recognized as leaders on the East Coast and because they were part of Malcolm X's group. So Huey Newton and Bobby Seale, the founders of the Black Panther Party nationally, made them the, the leaders, the founders of the Harlem Black Panthers and the Bronx Black Panthers. 
and Afeni Shakur married Lumumba Shakur. Afeni Shakur was Tupac's mother, and Zaid Shakur was made a minister of information of the uh, Bronx Black Panthers, and Asaj Shakur was so inspired by him that she changed her name to, you know, Asaj Shakur from Joanne Chasmar. And um, so then they had, of course, Afeni gave birth to Tupac and had a divorce with Lumumba for different reasons and married his adopted brother, Matulu Shakur, or actually moved in with him and, you know, considered Tupac's stepfather. And so these are all, you know, lesser known but incredible black activist leaders. And, um, you know, just sadly enough, the targeting of them, the targeting of Tupac, was with some of the same U.S. intelligence personnel and some of the same tactics as I found as the targeting of Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, as well as, you know, just other Black Panther leaders. And so I just detail that after researching it for over, you know, a decade and a half through government documents, CIA documents, court documents, interviewing over 100 people, and it's all, you know, documented with over um, a thousand and, you know, footnotes uh, throughout the book, so you can check the sources. Yeah, I think that for listeners, the book really, it builds and builds with like a, a denser and denser kind of a through line for mm-hmm. implicating a large, large institutions. And I just want to, in case, in case, John, you hadn't been aware, we uh, John Wiener, who's been on... Um, he was he's emeritus now here, but he wrote the sure definitive work with John Lennon's Just Give Me the Truth, where similar kind of harassment and yes. uh, when his arc was really building were toward a very consequential election. And the and the whole point was that at that arc uh, converging with when brand new voters that were now 18, not 21, were eligible mm-hmm. to vote was like that. So I, I'm not going to spend time on white activists. It's about the black activists here. So talk about... Yeah, but I think John Wiener's great, and I think I'm pretty sure I referenced him in my Drugs as Weapons Against yes, you, you... book, since that's also about uh, John Lennon, sure. Yeah, so, and so we're boned up on that, and we really are appreciative of all the work that, that, that John Wiener's been doing here. Mm-hmm. So talk about what you found about Tupac that made him so subversive in the eyes of federal and local law enforcement and the record industry, those behemoths. Well, yeah, Fanny Shakur was a one-time leader of the Harlem Black Panthers, and so she she called Tupac her Black Prince of the Revolution. And when I say revolution, I don't mean overthrowing the government. I just I think she she meant the Black Panthers meant changing society for the better for the 99% of us. And that's that's you know the actions they carried out. They started socialist kind of programs like free breakfast for poor children programs, free medical clinics for poor black community and free housing education, housing organizing, things like that. And so Tupac grew up with that, with this, these incredible mentors like that. And um, by the time he was 17 years old, he was the youngest elected uh, chairman of the New African Panthers, which was a national group active in 10 cities trying to replicate the Black Panthers um, without the mistakes. And so Tupac was already a black activist leader before he became a rapper. And so a uh, FBI whistleblower named Wes Swearingen, who had worked for the counterintelligence program of the FBI, and the counterintelligence program was implicated with attacking all these you know, black leaders um, murderously in their own documents. And so, you know, because of that, now because activists broke into the FBI office, got all the documents and released them to uh, the press, the FBI closed down its counterintelligence program in 1971. But Wes and said they continued their programs under different names, at least until the mid-1990s, when he came out with his book all about that. And so this just shows that some of the evidence that the FBI continued targeting black activist leaders. And so, of course, they would have been focused on Tupac, um, you know, when he became a national leader. And then when he added wealth and fame his activist agenda, they, of course, targeted him in more sophisticated ways to hide their targeting. But Tupac actually had a hidden agenda behind what was, you know, he was at this thug life movement. And what it was really about was it was part of his Black Panther extended family's work in getting the Bloods and Crips gangs to call peace truces between each other and stop fighting each other and to fight racism and uh, work on social activism. And it was working. It was spreading throughout California, and that actually spread throughout the country. And Tupac uh, took part in that. And uh, so he only pretended to be uh, this gangster in order to appeal to gangs and politicize them. What he really was was an intellectual prodigy. 
He rewrote Shakespeare in modern language and would direct and star in the plays that he produced when he was, was still in high school. He, um, he read hundreds of Ph.D.-level books before he was out of his teen years, according to Professor Michael Eric Dyson, who saw his whole library. And so he was just a, a really amazing man. It's too bad that we just didn't know the, the real Tupac because of this hidden agenda, political agenda. But he was having success with his activism, and because of that, because he was you know, inspiring so many, even you know, Latino uh, gangs to turn on to activism and stop the drug dealing and, and killing of each other, he was he was a threat to the uh, racist U.S. intelligence powers that be, sadly enough. And I I saw a parallel. I don't think you quite developed it, but you do you do bring up Fred Hampton Sr. I mean, you talk about Fred Hampton Jr. too. Working oh, definite later. parallel. But yeah. the definite parallel is that I remember that Fred Hampton knew the fix was in on his own life, and he was preparing to relocate to Canada, but that that mm. he was gunned down in uh, Chicago, and there's the same thing, that Tupac was intending to, as you say, relocate to Atlanta, you know, be right. there, establish, and he was trying to steer clear of the venue in Las Vegas that where he was eventually uh, murdered. So there, I, I think right. of both of those, if people think of Fred Hampton, now Tupac, that there's a, the, a similar kind of thing. So I want to, John, John, work with me here. I want to take this topic up about 60,000 feet. While I, uh-huh. While reading this, I kept thinking of all the resources used to track and manipulate him, in a sense, the extensive counterintelligence effort against Tupac Shakur was in real time, because you were talking about the mid 1990s was in real time when sleeper cells were hunkering in the, what was the 1993, and then the 2001 attacks on the World Trade Center, as well as other places. Have you considered the cost of how the resources were devoted in that way, that in the way of, of tracking the, the rap artists instead of like, hey, we've, we've got some other bigger menaces, folks, real menaces. Yeah, I mean, well, the example was found when, you know, when the uh, activists broke into the FBI office in 1971, these were anti-war activists, when they, when they found all those documents, they found uh, like really about 98 or 99% of the activities of the FBI were focused on anti-war activists and civil rights activists, and maybe one percent or two percent were devoted to looking at the KKK and you know, Ku Klux Klan and others um, that were doing all these horrible things, you know, to blacks. And so that's the way, sadly, the FBI divides their time: um, is they they really are targeting, you know, anti-war activists and civil rights activists. And I, I argue and. Of course, Wes Swearing and makes a case for that. It, that's the way it still goes on today. Right. And so, yes, but by, with his memoir in the mid '90s, it supports what you're saying in that regard. Yeah. So, well, I want that to sink in, everybody, because it happened before. It happened during that time, because there there were so many sleeper cells that were busy, and there were a few people that were in those agencies that were trying to get the attention. But no, 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 no. We know that. I mean, subversive for for FBI administration was uh, in their own construct, and it, it, we, we know the history. And so if we think of that in real time now, that opportunity cost is a real hazard to everybody's security, and security in the most civic interpretation. So I, yeah. I want to put that out there. And, and so I prepared, as I've been preparing for this interview, I've, I've checked in with folks and uh, what they think about why the case is still a mystery. Your research... John turns up a lot of receipts that have a way of explaining why the mystery persists. How might a breakthrough ever happen and get implicate well, the the responsible parties? Because it's still considered a mystery in the on yeah. the main, on the street. Well, Russell Poole was a high level Los Angeles police detective who, um, because of something that happened uh, with him, he got himself assigned to the investigation of the Biggie Smalls murder. Um, and so when, when that happened, he found, he ended up finding that Biggie Smalls was what you could call collateral damage to, uh, because his, he found his fellow cops were at all levels of death row records, you know, Tupac's last record label. And he asked his superiors what they're doing there, and they said you can call them troubleshooters or covert agents. And so he ended up researching it more and more and was offered his, you know, some uh, Los Angeles County Sheriff's Department more evidence of he thinks, who he thought was really the shooter in, the late, in about 20, I think it was about 2015 or 2016, and he ended up dying in that meeting. 
And um, so people are trying, uh, you know, so many people are trying to, create, you know, make this case go forward and see, you know, to show who really was behind uh, Tupac's murder. But sadly enough, the powers that be aren't letting it go forward. And people like, you know, according to the arts and entertainment channels, uh, Who Killed Tupac, at least 28 people associated with uh, Tupac's murder ended up dead, you know, too young. And um, it's just sadly not a coincidence. Um, And so, you know, I'd like to get that case solved, but, you know, obviously it's going to be very hard for that to happen when the powers that be don't seem to want to let it be solved and are covering things up so much. And so they they actually uh, hired, I believe, a disinformation agent in in a police officer who had to retire early because he was caught lying, according to Russell Poole. He was caught lying in court, a guy named Greg Kading. And so the A&E documentary showed that uh, Kading's biggest source was a man who uh, they they let off of decades of prison just to say that he was involved in the murder of Tupac and it was a gang-related murder, and you know, so it's this is this is the way they do things. Sadly enough, to hide these these events. So it, the, it seems like that the intimidation and uh, or the manipulation of directing Tupac into different places where he got squeezed eventually <clears throat> killed is that it's yeah. the same sort of interference of investigating the the root of the the whole murder case. I mean it's it just yeah. is sort of a continuation of that and that continuation remains an opportunity cost in keeping us all safe, keeping us in a, a civic society. Free uh, yeah. that the disinformation is also this kind of destabilizing sort of distracting, disorienting, gaslighting. I guess I get yeah. to say that now in, in uh, all earnestness. Sure. Gaslighting yeah, the public about definitely. Yeah, and what you said about the parallel of Fred Hampton is very appropriate because Fred Hampton was getting was created the first rainbow coalition of white activists, white you know radical activists, including the SDS and the Young Patriots, along with Latino activists, the Young Lords in Chicago, and uh, turning getting black um, gangs to turn on to activism to the point that they changed their name. One of these huge activist groups, I mean, one of these huge gangs with thousands of members, changed their name to the Black Peace Donation to show their solidarity with the Black Panthers. And Tupac um, had that same ability to appeal to people of all races and get them you know, involved in activism. And so that's similar reasons for why they were targeted, sadly enough. But um, I still think that, um, and what the other aspect I was going to mention was the fact that, sadly enough, is that these dozens of police officers in, at all levels of death row records were found, according to police reports that didn't come out, were actually involved in drug trafficking and gun running and trying to stop, trying to sabotage the Bloods versus Crips peace truce. And then when they um, murdered Tupac, that was, you know, uh, they thought, well, that was a big accomplishment. And so uh, Suge Knight lost his legal immunity and ended up going to jail for a minor, you know, assault at that time versus the major assaults he, he was involved with, including you know, people getting shot in his record studio and people, you know, at his events and you know, other things that he, horrible things he had done along the way when he was trying to help set up Tupac Shakur, even though he was a like low man on the totem pole. And Dave Kenner, the white attorney, was a real owner of Death Row Records and was higher up on that you know, U.S. intelligence totem pole. Those structural power elements there. So it's sort of it's the paradox of who the perpetrators really are is, is what you're mentioning. So for those of you who just joined us, my guest is John Potash talking about the unsolved case in his new edition of the FBI War on Tupac Shakur, State Repression of Black Leaders from the Civil Rights Era through the 1990s published by by Microcosm Publishing. And along with this is an immersive experience exhibition in Los Angeles. It continues through March 30th. Wake me when I'm free. Before we get to that exhibit, though, to talk, it's still happening, though, we were talking about near the end of your book is about in the latter portion about how these kind of brawls are sort of manufactured to show a kind of a collision, a, a sort of a, a conflict amongst performers and their mm-hmm. their their followers, and it's there's those brawls are still happening. Do you think with the ubiquitous cell phone filming, and I'm I'm not signing on to 
to some of the sort of brand of citizen journalism. But I'm just wondering if in 2022, do you think that with the ubiquitous cell phone filming and social media in its like a little bit more pure, uh, uh, earnest form, that more and better trails can be developed toward routing out the the culprits? Or is law enforcement structure intimidation just too embedded for this kind of coverage to have any impact? Well, I think there's some uprooting of police brutality, just people, you know, showing on their cell, getting on their cell phones and putting on YouTube is helping expose police brutality. But, you know, in, some, in a number of these cases, what's happening, too, is people's phones are being taken away and other things are being intimidations happening to stop people from filming, you know, incidents, too. So, you know, I'm, I'm glad that more is getting out there, but uh, there's other tactics for doing things more covertly also and, and, you know, for stopping people from exposing the truth, too, sadly enough. Right. Gaslighting has been, it's like a whole whole sector of not just media, but of public agencies, actually. So it's, a, yeah. it's, it's really, a, it's putting a huge onus on us to remain literate with being skeptical about. So, but I, I just didn't know if sort of this distributed kind of news coverage is a way of putting more eyes and ears on a situation that's breaking out. So tell us about the current exhibit in Los Angeles and does it steer new readers to your book that you can tell? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it just does great work in showing the activist uh, side of Tupac and his mother, Faini's great activist work as a one-time leader of the Harlem Black Panthers, and um, just shows, uh, you know, a lot of uh, other aspects of Tupac. So I, you know, of course, I hope it gets people more interested in Tupac and, and read and finding out more from my book and all the details of the way Tupac inspired so many to turn on to activism behind the scenes. And, um, you know, so, yeah, I think it's a, just a great exhibit and a great, um, and it's supposed to, after six months in L.A., it's supposed to travel, I'm pretty sure it's supposed to travel to other cities, which is great, too. So. Okay, and that and people can, when they go to the exhibit, they can find that, or they can just keep watching for the Wake Me When I'm Free uh, .com and follow where that is happening. Well, I really, really thank you for your time today. This has been really, really interesting. I have to, I have to play the instrumental version of uh, of Tupac just because um, we sure. we don't have SCC clean uh, too many tracks, and that's and he he uses those uh, all, all those to uh, important effects. So, but I want to thank you, John Potash, for your time and your really intriguing investigation. Thanks so much for having me on, Claudia. My Good guest, talking with you. Thank you. My guest was John Potash talking about the unsolved case in his brand new book. The FBI War on Tupac Shakur, State Repression of Black Leaders from the Civil Rights Era through the 1990s. And as we were talking, this immersive exhibit experience here is at in Los Angeles. Well, that's my wrap. And for next week's show, Irvine watchdog Brenda Lynn is back for the whole hour with more takes on the Orange County Power Authority, what is putting in motion that we ratepayers ought to know. I'm here in your uni hills, folks. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening, everyone. And folks, verify your news sources. Verify before clicking forward.